Well, hey, good morning, Plum Creek. It's great to see you. It's great to be back here today after being gone last Sunday. I was down at Camp Northward leading a session called Parent and Me Camp. We had an amazing weekend. I can't wait to do that again next year. And I am really grateful to Jared for preaching last week. He did a great job of wrapping up our series on the life of David. And before I jump into the sermon today, I want to stop and say happy 4th of July to all of you. You know, it's kind of funny. I went back and checked, and in all my years here at Plum Creek, I have never had the opportunity to preach on the actual day of July 4th. So this seems like a good opportunity to, to stop and thank God for this country and to go to God in prayer and ask him to work. Because the truth is, our country needs him to work. So let's do that right now. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you now, and we, we just thank you so much for uh, the privilege to be here, to live in this country, to have uh, this freedom to come and worship you right now. Lord, I, I also know that there are many ways that this country is not what you want it to be. So I pray for revival. I pray that people will turn their hearts back to you. I pray for our leaders, uh, that they would have wisdom, that they would seek you. And I pray for healing in all the ways that we need healing. Lord, there is brokenness in this world, there is brokenness in this country, and we know the answer is Jesus. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am excited to kick off a brand new series this morning. Uh, we're going to spend several weeks in the book of 1 Peter. And before we dive in, I want to give you a little background. Uh, the book of 1 Peter is actually a letter. Uh, it was written by the Apostle Peter. And, and yes, this is the same Peter who was a fisherman before he became a disciple of Jesus. It's the same Peter who followed Jesus for three years and then he became a key leader in the early days of the Christian church. Peter is a very significant character in the Bible. And in this letter, he writes to several churches across a region that's called Asia Minor. And this region is basically what we would now call Turkey. And throughout this letter, Peter keeps returning to a particular theme. It's the theme of suffering. How should Christians deal with trials and tribulations, opposition and pain? It's not hard to figure out why Peter writes about this topic. He, he covers suffering because his readers are going through some hard times and they need encouragement. Now, in the same time period when Peter wrote this letter, Christians were getting some hostility from their neighbors in the Roman Empire. The Romans just didn't like the Christians. In fact, uh, Tacitus, uh, a Roman historian, he said that Christians were hated for their abominations. Tacitus also said that Christianity was a deadly superstition. He said it is hideous and shameful. Now, in the near future, that hostility becomes outright persecution. So Peter wants these Christians to be ready. 
He wants them to stand strong in their faith. And he wants to give them hope. Now, our situation today is very different than Asia Minor in the first century, but we still have plenty of suffering in our time, right? So we're going to find that this letter is very relevant for all of us living today. And during the series, we're going to look at one chapter of 1 Peter every week for five weeks. And today, we're focusing on chapter 1, specifically verses 3 through 9. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, go ahead and turn to that passage. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can read the verses up on the screens. So follow along with me as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there you go. This is Peter encouraging a group of suffering Christians. And I'll be honest here, the first time I read this passage, uh, I I just (laughs) was thinking, wow, what did I just read? Uh, I'm not sure what that was about. I didn't quite follow it. And you know, that is completely normal. It often takes a little time and a little digging to get the meaning of a particular passage. But as I studied these verses, I got really excited about what God is saying to us here. And for several days, I've really been looking forward to sharing this with you. And the first thing I want to share, it it might seem like it has nothing to do with 1 Peter. It it might seem like it's more about the 4th of July. See, while I was reading this passage, a well-known phrase popped into my head. I thought of these words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm sure we've all heard those words, but do you know where they come from? comes from the Declaration of Independence. It's the first sentence in the second paragraph. Here's the full sentence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, when Thomas Jefferson wrote that statement, It was a revolutionary principle. The founders of our country declared that every human being has God-given rights to live, to be free, and to pursue their own happiness. And these founders believed that a good government will protect and preserve these rights. And I am so thankful that we live in a country that was founded on this principle. And I am 
thankful for the millions of people who have put their lives on the line to defend our freedom, to defend these rights. So I, I think most of us would agree this is a great principle for a government. But let's take things down to a personal level. When a government like ours gives you the freedom to do whatever you want with your life, how should you use that freedom? How should you implement these rights on an individual level? Well, here's where it gets interesting. You see, for some people, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness frees them up to run after the American dream. And uh, as we dig in 1 Peter today, we're going to see that following Jesus is often very different than the American dream. Now, when I say that, uh, some of you might raise your eyebrows a little, like, what you talking about, Doug? Well, let me read you a quote from a man named James Truslow Adams. This guy literally wrote the book on the American dream. He is the one who popularized this phrase. And here's how Adams defined it. He said, the American dream is the belief that life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement regardless of social class or circumstances of birth. So what is this dream about? Well, it's about everybody having the opportunity for a better life. But what is a better life? What's the implication here? Well, in a word, it's happiness. It's success. It's a state of contentment while you're living in this world. And you know, this is not necessarily a selfish dream. You can want that better life for your kids. Or if you're especially kind and generous, you can work to build a better life for your neighbors or even total strangers. And I'm not saying this better life is a bad thing. It's a good thing. But I have a strong conviction here, and it's based on Scripture. Following Jesus is often different than the American dream. This may sound a little jarring for us to hear, but God does not promise the kind of happiness and contentment that is based in this world. Let's go back to 1 Peter 1.6. That verse says, In all this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, I want to point out something here. Peter says to Christians, you may have had to suffer grief. And that is an English translation. But in the original Greek language, the meaning is stronger. Uh, the, the original wording is more like this. Peter says, it was necessary for you to suffer grief. Wow, why would he say that? Why would he say it was necessary? Well, that indicates there is a purpose in our pain. In fact, later in this letter, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, for Christians, this may seem counterintuitive. Uh, you might think that when you decide to follow Jesus, God would then shield you from suffering. But it's interesting. 
the readers of this letter were suffering specifically because of their faith in Jesus. When, when they decided to become Christians, their life got harder in some ways, not easier. And that might lead you to, to say, well, so why follow Jesus in the first place? Well, there's an obvious answer to that question. If you decide not to follow Jesus, that doesn't mean you escape suffering. The truth is, suffering is inevitable. You can try to avoid it. You, you can try to pursue happiness through success or achievement, material things, pleasure or relationships, but you can't avoid all pain. And it's not easy for Americans to hear that because we're so used to running after that dream of happiness. Years ago, there was a famous doctor named Paul Brand. Dr. Brand was born to missionary parents over in India, and he served as a doctor in India for over 20 years, and he worked with people like lepers and other patients who, who just suffered greatly. But after 20 years in India, Dr. Brand came to the United States. And you know, here in the U.S., pain is a four-letter word. We spend literally billions of dollars every year for pain relief. And Dr. Brand noticed a big difference between the people of India and the people in this country. He said, here in America, patients live at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Now, why would that be? Well, we spend our lives trying to be as comfortable as possible. And when suffering comes, it's a shock. It doesn't seem right. But what did Peter say? He said, don't be surprised when you suffer. It's inevitable. After all, Jesus lived a perfect life. And, and he experienced a terrible amount of suffering. Why would we expect to be excused from it? So that's the first thing we need to know. Suffering is inevitable. But what about the positive side of this? Well, here in 1 Peter 1, we see a couple of things. First, through seasons of suffering, it's possible to grow as a person. We can grow to become more like Jesus. It's also possible to have great joy even as we suffer. So these things sound positive, but let's be realistic. The truth is, there is no guarantee that you will become a better person while you suffer. And there's definitely no guarantee that you will have joy while you suffer. But Peter tells us that these things are absolutely possible. So let's, let's try to figure this out. And to do that, I want to give you a metaphor. And, and this might sound a little strange, but I'm going to ask you to go with me here. Last year, I read a book that described the cathedrals that they built back in the Middle Ages. And I found this fascinating. Cathedral building really evolved over the years. And as the centuries went by, cathedrals got better and better as the architects improved their methods. For example, early cathedrals often had ceilings that were made of wood. And there was a major problem with that. What was the problem? Wood burns. Those wooden ceilings were very susceptible to fire. So architects developed a style that we now call Romanesque. 
And don't worry, there's no quiz on this later. Now, with a Romanesque cathedral, the ceiling was usually made of stone. And there was a problem with that, too. What's the problem? Stone is very heavy. So, uh, a stoned ceiling, it creates a lot of pressure from above. And these cathedrals had to have thick walls to compensate for that pressure and that weight. And unfortunately, the thick walls, they they didn't allow much space for windows. So Romanesque cathedrals were usually dark and damp. So let's check this out in a diagram. We'll divide this building into three levels. First, you have the foundation. Then you have the support, which in this case would be the walls. And these walls are needed to support that heavy roof, right? And here's where the metaphor kicks in. This old Romanesque cathedral represents a common approach to life that we see all over the world, but especially here in America. First, you start with your foundation, which would be my life. My life is about me, right? That's common sense. But then what's your support? What are you trusting in? What are you counting on? Well, I'm counting on my personal freedom and my personal happiness. I want to be free to do what I want to do because I can use that freedom to achieve my ultimate goal of happiness. It's the American dream. That's what it's about. But what about that roof? What does that represent? Well, the roof would be your circumstances. And in some cases, the roof is not very heavy. Maybe things are going pretty well for you right now uh, at the moment. But sooner or later, your circumstances will change because suffering, it's inevitable. And you're going to wake up one day and feel this heavy weight bearing down on you. That roof will get very heavy. And if you are living for what happens in this world, if you are uh, all about, you're, you're counting on happiness and contentment here and now, that approach will eventually crush you. Back in the Middle Ages, some architects had to learn this the hard way. In 1322, in the English town of Ely, a stonemason tried to build a bigger and better cathedral, but the ceiling collapsed because that Romanesque design couldn't support all that weight And in the same way, it's incredibly unwise to build your life on the pursuit of worldly happiness. Even if you're fortunate enough to be fairly happy for most of your days on earth, your days on earth will come to an end, and that building will come crashing down. It will be a tragedy, a disaster. So we need a different approach to life. And that brings us to a new building style. Uh, Eventually, cathedrals evolved into what we now call Gothic architecture. Uh, Another name for this would be pointy architecture. Because you can see that difference, right? Instead of the rounded windows of the Romanesque style, Gothic windows came to a point at the top. And those pointed arches were not just for the windows. They were used all throughout the building. Architects learned that this shape would transfer the weight from the supporting walls. So you didn't need thick walls anymore. Those pointed arches rested on pillars and columns that did all of the heavy lifting. 
So cathedrals could soar higher than ever before. And for me, this Gothic style it represents a much better approach to life. You could call it the first Peter approach. Let's look at this from the top down. First, you, you start with your circumstances. It's, it's that same roof. Sometimes it's light. Sometimes it's heavy. Uh, but then what about the support? What are you counting on? Well, here in First Peter, it's your faith in Christ. That's what holds the weight. That's your support. Your faith would be the pillars that transfer that weight down into the foundation. And what is that foundation? Well, with that other approach, it's me, right? My life is about me. But here in 1 Peter, your foundation is Jesus himself. Your life is not your own. It's not about you. Your life is in Christ. That common approach to life, it doesn't work. It doesn't hold up in the long run. But God's approach absolutely works. So that's the metaphor, but we can't stop there. We need to learn how to adopt this approach into our everyday lives. And Peter really helps us here. He tells us how we can experience growth and joy even when we're in the middle of a time of suffering. First, from our passage today, we learn that it is appropriate and it's good to acknowledge and experience grief while you suffer. We, we see that in verse 6, right? In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Suffering, suffering shouldn't be a surprise. It's a normal part of life. And grief is also normal and appropriate. It's a healthy thing to feel that pain. We see this in other parts of the Bible. You can look at David in the Psalms. Look at Job. They cried out to God in deep pain and grief, and he appreciated that. He honored that. You know, sometimes Christians want to push grief aside, uh, push bad feelings aside. Have you ever heard the phrase, too blessed to be stressed? I've seen that on a bumper sticker. I'm too blessed to be stressed. I understand what that person is saying, but if you take it literally, it sounds like a Christian's life should be stress-free. And that's not realistic, is it? I mean, if you're walking in the woods and a bear attacks you, are you really going to say, uh, you do whatever you want, bear. I, I am stress-free. I'm not going to sweat it. No, stress is just a part of the human experience, and so is grief. When you go through a time of loss, it is good and it's proper to grieve. Now, in 1 Peter 1.6, God does tell us to rejoice in our grief. But let's be clear. God is not saying that we should deny our grief and rejoice instead. You don't have to pretend like the pain doesn't hurt. God doesn't want pain for us. But at the same time, we should know that God will use our pain to help us grow. He will refine us. That's what we see in the next verse, 1 Peter 1, 7. He says, these trials, these tribulations, these difficulties, they have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, I am no goldsmith, but here's what I do know. When you take gold out of the ground, it comes with impurities, things that are not gold. And when you put that gold in a fire, the fire softens the gold, but it won't destroy it. The fire burns out those impurities. The impurities are separated, and then the goldsmith skims them off. So in this verse, the gold represents your faith, and the fire represents your suffering. It's a refining process. And it's true, suffering reveals what you're actually trusting in. Is your faith truly in Jesus? Are you willing to suffer for him? Or are you trying to build a life of happiness and contentment in this world? The refining process reveals that. And once those impurities come to the surface, God can go to work. God will help us grow. He will bring good out of our pain. But we don't have to pretend that the pain doesn't hurt. We don't have to stuff it down or push it aside. That's not what God is saying here. God is not telling us to deny our grief and rejoice instead. God is telling us to rejoice as we go through grief. These things happen together. The joy and the grief can exist simultaneously, side by side. But how is that possible? Well, this is only possible when you lean on the support of those pillars. You trust in Jesus. There are several ways we can do that, but here's one simple way. It's simple, but it's challenging. When you really put your trust in Jesus, you will pursue him above your personal freedom and even above your happiness. You see, faith is not just believing in Jesus. It's trusting him enough to do what he says, even when you disagree, even when you think his way might make you unhappy. Later in chapter 1, Peter says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy means that you are set apart. You're set apart to be pure and blameless, to live as Jesus did, to say no to what you want and say yes to what Jesus wants. And you might say, well, hold on. Does, does that mean that I have to sacrifice my freedom and happiness in order to follow Jesus? Well, in one sense, yes. But in a greater sense, no. Because when you put Jesus above everything else, you will be blessed in the process. Jesus was very clear about this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. So you have these two things that seem contradictory, but here they are, side by side. You got two options here. 
if you pursue happiness in and of itself, if that's your goal, the building of your life will crumble under its own weight. But if you pursue Jesus instead of happiness, you get happiness thrown into the bargain. Happiness, freedom, and joy are all byproducts of following Jesus. And that's the third and final step we'll look at today. In order for suffering to be a positive thing in your life, you need to allow Jesus to give you a living hope that brings joy. That's what Peter said in the beginning of the passage that we read today. Chapter 1, verse 3. And remember, Peter is talking specifically to Christians here. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. You probably heard the phrase, born again. Well, this verse is where that phrase comes from. And it says, When you belong to Christ... You are born again into a living hope. Hope that carries you through a season of suffering. But again, let's be realistic here. When you are suffering, you can't just tell yourself to have hope. So where does that hope come from? Well, it comes from knowing that Jesus is for real. This is not some made-up story. He is who the Bible says he is. But you might say, well, how do I know that? How do I know that Jesus is for real? The simple answer is this. It's the resurrection. Let's go back to that same verse, and this time we'll keep reading. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can believe everything that he said. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust him with our lives. We can be confident that he will raise us from the dead if we belong to him. Now, if you are someone who struggles to believe that the resurrection really happened, I want you to know there are many solid reasons to believe. It's not just a legend, it's a fact. And if you would like to get some of those reasons, I'd be glad to share them with you. So that's our living hope. But where does the joy come from? You know, I could understand gritting your teeth while you suffer. I could understand shedding tears as you grieve. That makes sense. But how is it possible to rejoice even when you're in the middle of suffering? Well, this is the best part. Our joy comes from Jesus himself. It's the joy of being in his presence. If you've given your life to Jesus, you are in his presence right here, right now. This is a promise that Jesus made to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. He said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The presence of Jesus makes all the difference in this world. Sometimes uh, one of our kids will get scared in the night. And when they are, you know, lying in their bed alone in the dark, their fear gets overwhelming. But if I go in and I lie down next to them, all of a sudden that fear just fades away. 
It's my presence that makes the difference. And that's what it means when Jesus is with you. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is a real joy that comes from the presence of Jesus, but there's a promise of an even greater joy, infinitely greater. His presence will be fully realized in heaven. That's when we get to spend eternity with him. The promise of that future joy is is one of the foundational things that will carry you through this life. You can look forward to a day when your faith becomes sight, when the heavy burdens of this world are completely forgotten and you get to see Jesus face to face. You know, in the end, this is not a common approach to life. It's not a common thing to pursue Jesus above your own freedom and above your own happiness. It's not a common thing to deny yourself and build your life on the foundation of Jesus. But as we learn to live this way, the difference will be obvious to everyone. And it's a beautiful thing. Remember those Gothic cathedrals? It's kind of amazing. Uh, Those Gothic cathedrals didn't have to be damp and dark on the inside. They didn't need thick walls that would allow no space for windows. Those walls were freed up to hold beautiful stained glass windows. And the images on these windows, they told the story of Scripture. They told the story of Jesus. And these windows filled the church's interior with light which was intentional. It was a symbol of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. And when you think about it, your life could be a lot like one of those cathedrals. When your life is built on Jesus and you're living by faith in Jesus, his light will fill you. And your life can tell his story just like those stained glass windows. And that, friends, It's a beautiful way to live. Let's pray. Father, because of Jesus, you understand what we're going through. When we have trials and tribulations and grief, you you get that. And Lord, uh, help us to understand that pursuing happiness in this world is futile. Help us to understand that, yes, you want us to be happy, but you want a deeper happiness that is found in you and stretches into eternity. Lord, I pray that those who already have that promise, that we will take that into every day of our lives, even the tough days. And for those who don't have that promise yet, I pray that they will find that in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.